Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand with Jim Feeney. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern with 30 minutes of hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find these episodes as podcasts at my website, www.jimfeeney.com, and you can subscribe to the show also at Apple Podcasts. In my book, Locally Grown, The Art of Sustainable Government, I talk about how our country's bottom-up design of 20,000 zip codes, 50 states, and one federal government brilliantly distributes power within that bottom-up infrastructure. Our founders intended most governance to be done locally and about the inherent dangers of too much centralized power. My book exposes the unsustainability of our government debt and the awful bargain we make when we exchange freedom for security. I introduce readers to locally grown principles like sustainability, accountability, the double bottom line, harnessing excess capacity, simplification, and engaged citizenship. I try to make the case that returning to our federalist roots through locally grown principles is the path to sustainable, effective government that better serves the common good. Speaking of which, education is one of the most important aspects of the common good because it invests in our future generations. Appropriately, it's the third highest spending category we have at nearly $1 trillion across all levels of government. 88% of that uh, is funded and spent at the state and local levels. Public primary and secondary schools represent about 70% of the total. So in terms of important government functions, education is probably the most locally grown as it's delivered at the uh, local level under the watchful eye of parents, school boards, and local officials. According to the latest data uh, from the OECD, the U.S. ranks fourth in annual public K-12 spending per student and first in college spending per student. And yet the U.S. is about middle of the pack for K-12 through science, math, and reading. It, so it makes sense that we should be the most expensive education with regard to colleges, but the middle of the pack results is unacceptable. Reforming our public education system is the Marshall Plan of our time. And if we don't get it right, we're all going to suffer. Why is this? Well, when we dive deep to uncover the root causes, uh, some uncomfortable facts emerge, and effective policy should recognize these facts. According to the National Assessment of Educational Progress administered by the U.S. Department of Education, which is the largest assessment of what students are learning in our public schools, um, the 2019 results are pretty disturbing. Only 34% of students were proficient in reading, about the same as 2009. At 34%, the math scores remained about the same uh, since 2009. The bottom line is that our nation's public schools are failing in their basic mission for 60 to 65% of our students. And yet, according to the U.S. Census, since 2012, average per student spending has increased by 18%. In fact, from 1970 through 2015, national spending per public secondary school student increased from $6,400 to about $14,000 in inflation-adjusted dollars. That's a 118% increase. One might be tempted to say that our population is growing, so we have more kids in school, so of course the spending is increasing to match the population increase. The fact is, our population has grown about 60% since 1970, but the number of school-aged children has remained nearly the same at about 53 million. 
given the ever-diminishing fertility rate in the United States, this really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So, let's review quickly. For the past half century, the United States has more than doubled spending on nearly the same number of public school students, and yet has made no progress in the basic mission of education. More than 60% of students still are not proficient in reading and math after nearly 50 years of continuously increasing spending. Let that sink in for a moment. Unfortunately, education at all levels in this country has been Uh, become quite politicized, and from teachers to administrators to politicians to parents, we are all guilty of tolerating this level of underachievement. So, what's the root cause of the problem? Now, there are several, uh, but lack of money is not one of them. When uh, you factor in public sector retirement benefits with teachers' salaries, they are well compensated compared to their private sector counterparts. In a 2011 study, called Assessing the Compensation of Public School Teachers by Jason Richwine uh, and Andrew Biggs, uh, both PhDs. They concluded that the public school teacher total compensation is 52% greater than the equivalent private sector job with comparable education and skills requirements. In the private sector, companies and employees that underperform for a fraction of this 50-year duration almost always go bankrupt or are fired. However, public schools function like a monopoly, where the power of government is routinely used to suppress competition or parents who demand better. We could speculate on other root causes, but a civil function so vital to the future of our nation that has underperformed so long cannot be tolerated any longer. The irony is that our country has incredible teachers, the vast majority of which are motivated to changing the lives of our kids for the better. And yet we often tie their hands and put heavy weights on their backs. A perfect example of this is one of the big dirty secrets behind public school underperformance, and that's illegal immigration. Immigrant families are flooding into our sanctuary cities and states, and the language and culture barriers put great pressure on our public schools. Here are some pretty sobering statistics from a 2017 study by the Center of Immigration Studies, a pro-immigration nonprofit. 23% of public school students in the United States came from an immigrant household in 2015, compared to 7% in 1980. In 2015, 23% of American public schools spoke a language other than English at home, compared to 9% in 1980. Immigration has added disproportionately to the number of low-income students in public schools. In 2015, 28% of public school students from immigrant households lived in poverty, and they accounted for 30% of all students living below the poverty line. So local schools struggle uh, to deal with teaching in multiple foreign languages, which creates enormous challenges. In 315 school districts representing about 6.7 million students, 10 or more foreign languages are spoken. Imagine that. And there are over 700 census areas in the country where the public schools contain at least half of their students from uh, immigrant households, uh, including 93% in uh, Northeast Dade County near Miami and Florida, 91% in Jackson Heights, New York City, 85% in the West Park Tollway Loop in um, Houston, Texas, in El Monte, in South El Monte cities in California, and 78% in the Annandale West Falls Church, uh, Virginia area. Folks, algebra is hard enough to learn without a language barrier. 
This dynamic also affects kids who are citizens who suffer from resources and curriculum being diluted in order to meet the needs of an increasingly non-English speaking student body. With this kind of a challenge, we shouldn't be surprised at the diminishing performance of our public schools. We can't solve the problem of underperforming schools in the long run without also reforming our immigration laws. I'm certain there are more than a few billion people on the planet who would love to move to America if they could, especially if they could receive most of the public benefits that citizens enjoy. Unfortunately, America would cease to exist if this this were to occur. As our Constitution explicitly provides, solving our immigration challenge is solely the duty of the federal government. It's one of the few enumerated powers outlined by our founders. So, fix immigration, fix public education. That's killing two birds with one stone, another locally grown principle. We'll talk more about this after the break. Hello, we are back. You're listening to United We Stand with Jim Feeney. Our topic today is education, and in our first segment, uh, we were talking about the problems we face in public education. Now let's talk about some of the potential solutions. Thankfully, there are solutions out there that yield better results. Charter schools, for example, are also publicly funded public schools and they're organized by specific state laws and are exempt from some state and local laws. In exchange for the flexibility and autonomy, charter schools must meet certain accountability criteria as well as abide by the same rules as public schools. These include being open to all children, not requiring entrance exams, not charging tuition, and participating in state and federal accountability programs. One of the big advantages for charters is that they're not obliged to hire only teachers who are members of a union. They can hire anyone they want, create teacher performance criteria, and work rules that aren't governed by a collective bargaining agreement. Also, at $7,131 average per student, charter schools receive significantly less public funding than their district school counterparts. Despite smaller budgets and operational handicaps put in place uh, in some jurisdictions by politicians protecting the public school monopoly, charter schools typically outperform their traditional public school counterparts. While performance can vary by, by geography, a 2017 study by Stanford University's Center for Research on Education they found that charter schools as a whole showed statistically significant better outcomes than their district school peers on a national basis. Large charter school networks such as Achievement First, Basic Schools, and KIPP generally uh, generate extraordinary outcomes compared to their non-charter counterparts. Some of these charters achieve student results equivalent to an additional 125 days of learning in math and 57 days in reading. These are incredible outcomes, folks, which explains why there's such high demand and waiting lists for charter schools, especially in low-income communities. In fact, charter school enrollment comprises significantly more African-American and Hispanic students than traditional public schools, 57% versus 39%. So I can hear some of you now pigeonholing me as some kind of hater that wants to destroy our public schools, but that's far from it. 
I'm a proud product of a great public school in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, where my dad was a teacher for 25 years. He was even on the team that negotiated union contracts with the town and the state. When my wife Katie and I uh, moved our family to Wyoming, we found the public schools were awful and the state was strongly opposed to charter schools. After trying a private school that taught a a way different version of history than what I learned in school, uh, and they also prohibited the Pledge of Allegiance, we were faced with a dilemma. We couldn't live in a place that didn't fit the educational values we wanted for our kids. As we were closing in on a decision to potentially leave uh, Wyoming, Providence shined upon us as one of our neighbors had just started a new private school that sounded interesting. Literally, it was a little red schoolhouse with eight elementary school students. Their curriculum was based on the classical liberal arts educational model that has been the foundation of Western education for centuries. The Socratic method, unabridged Shakespeare, great math and science, and a robust arts and music program. All of this was circumscribed by a moral compass, so so understanding what is true and good was a key to their mission. And the mission statement from the school was to cultivate within students the wisdom and virtue necessary to discover their God-given potential and contribute to a flourishing and free society. Well, growing up in Boston, uh, great parochial school choices were a legacy for over 300 years. Places like Zaverian Brothers, St. John's Academy, Boston Latin, and Boston English set the bar for secondary education. We were hooked. We enrolled our daughter and eventually our son the, the, the private school, and they both received an amazing primary school education that helped them propel them to outstanding academic achievement. Now, as a businessman, I'm quite familiar with the startup model for businesses, having founded or co-founded several com- companies in my career, but I've had no experience with starting up a school. Naturally, the school founders and neighbors, Steve and Polly Freeze, recruited me to the board of directors as their treasurer, which meant Lots and lots of fundraising, uh, to be honest. Like any startup, you need people with a wider scope of skills that can multitask. There's always something to do, so I was involved in recruiting, management, facilities, and many other areas. One thing that stood out to me at Jackson Hole Classical Academy was uh, that they were providing a far superior education at 40% less cost per student than public schools. Now, I'm not naive enough to consider this as a true apples-to-apples comparison because the public school serves many more children. However, as a private school, we weren't subject to most of the draconian and illogical state rules that the public school had to follow, and that eliminated the biggest obstacle, which was the teachers' union. Being a startup, nearly all of our kids were coming from public school, so we first we saw firsthand what their educational baseline was, which was much lower than ours. Kids who were getting A's in the public school were getting B's and C's at Jackson Hole Classical until they acclimated to the, the, the teaching methods. Over time, most of these kids uh, were outperforming their public school peers on standardized tests. Uh, As we grew, the public school monopoly, in conjunction with the town and county officials, viewed us as a threat. And for five years, they did everything in their power to shut us down. It was incredible. They kicked us out of our little schoolhouse and then wouldn't approve a building uh, permit for a new school. 
it finally took a last-minute appeal to the Wyoming State House, who passed a new law to, to stop the unbridled aggression against our school. Uh, the Freeze family continues to show amazing fortitude in supporting the cause of improving, improving education for children, and my, my hat's definitely off to them. Then about five years ago, it became clear that my elderly parents needed help, so we moved to Vero Beach, Florida, a really different place than Jackson, Wyoming. For starters, there was a large community of low-income families where many uh, kids, uh, for many kids, the public school was a better environment than their homes, and the only place where, for example, they could get guaranteed uh, meals and good nutrition. Left with few options, many of these kids are passed on to the next level with inflated grades. I see this low educational baseline firsthand through our family's volunteer work with crossover mission as mentors and academic tutors for at-risk kids. This educational gap was amplified when we raised scholarships for several deserving, hard-working crossover kids to attend the same great private school that my kids went to. After a difficult academic start in integrating these minority kids into a pretty wealthy white bread school culture, uh, they're now thriving. And uh, the St. Edwards administrators, teachers, and students welcome these kids with open arms. Particular credit goes to the retiring head of school, Mike Mursky, who shared our vision. It's been an amazing thing to witness. These kids will be the first in their families to attend college, and it will drastically change the arc of their lives. Let's deploy locally grown principles to make our public schools more like the private institutions my kids attend. Let's raise the bar, not lower it. Crossover Mission is a proven model for raising the bar for low-income kids who are willing to work for a better future. I'm lobbying my federal and state representatives to peel off some federal and state dollars to test successful private local models like Crossover Mission. So just so we are clear, the public education is driven by politics. Educational policy uh, decided a very close 2018 Florida gubernatorial election. Democratic candidate Andrew Gillum opposed school choice, and Republican candidate Ron DeSantis was a vocal supporter of school choice. DeSantis beat Mr. Gillum, who's an African-American man, by winning 18% of the female African-American vote. It's about 100,000 votes in an election that was decided by less than 40,000 votes. These school choice moms voted for a better future for their kids at a rate that was 250% higher than African-American females voted for uh, the GOP nationally. Governor DeSantis is making good on his campaign promise to increase school choice by expanding the state voucher program. And the winners in all this are Florida kids. Folks, we can't continue to tolerate underperforming public schools. There's powerful evidence that educational outcomes are not a function of money, but rather methodology, accountability, and empowering teachers. Kids are sponges, and they'll emulate good or bad examples in society. Parents are the first role models, and millions of families are showing the courage to vote with their feet and enroll their kids in charter schools to increase their chances at a better future. On the other hand, if kids see teachers constrained by poor curriculum and work rules that prioritize adult interests over the students' interests, they'll be less motivated to do their best work. Great teachers are inspiring, and they can change lives. I've witnessed this with my own kids. But there's more than ample room to raise the bar for everyone. We can and we must do better for our kids. The future of our country depends on it. Well, that's my show for today. 
Over the next few episodes, I'll start bringing in guests and take listener calls to start the civil discussion that we need so desperately in this country to find strong middle ground. If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at uh, jimfeeney.com and you can receive my regular newsletter and comment on it with others. In the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other and all for all. Thank you.